0: guys this morning to read a sermon passage before us, and you can turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be in front of you, and you'll uh, find today's text on page 966. We, we take a break from what has been uh, the last several months' exposition through the book of Acts to consider this special ordination and installation service for Mark Evans. And in God's kind providence that always knows best, it's actually quite striking that the week after we looked at Acts 13, which talked about the church at Antioch laying on hands and setting apart men to go plant churches. We, the very next week, well, lay hands and set apart a man to go plant a church. And I want to call your attention this morning to verse 8 through 12. 2nd Timothy chapter 1 so let me read that and we'll then begin together so here now as God speaks to us through his word therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord nor of me his prisoner but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we thank you that you are a God who does great and glorious things, so full of majesty that they are even beyond our comprehension, but in your kindness and your wisdom you have Come down to us by sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to speak words of life to us, that he has even ascended to your right throne or your right hand in heaven and has not left us without his presence by his word and spirit. And so as you gather us into that same presence this day, we pray that you would help us to do so with meekness in our hearts, with souls that desire to repent and follow you fully, that we might know your mercy and grace. That we might hear of this great gospel grace with urgency, knowing that you have not promised that we'll ever hear another sermon. I might preach rightly, knowing that I'm not promised to preach another sermon. So give us that holy urgency in light of eternity, that we might look upon Jesus Christ, and it is his name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. I first met Mark Evans. Fourteen years ago, I had preached my first sermon, if I recall correctly, at the church where I was serving as an associate pastor, and Mark was in the back of the room at the end of the service counting the money that he was soon to deposit from that, money's, that morning's offering. And the first question that he ever asked me was, hey, have you been to seminary? And I wondered if I said something of such grave error in the sermon that he was going to impute something to the seminary that I attended. But it was from that conversation that we struck up a friendship that, of course, has been quite long and that in many ways has been full of ministerial brotherhood as I served at that church as an associate pastor where Mark was a deacon and then I watched from afar with eager interest as he went and pastored bivocationally in a nearby local church for two years and after that he, he came to the church where I last pastored. Served there as an elder for a number of years. I have had so many conversations with Mark about his future in ministry that I dare say if you added them up all together, they would have weeks and weeks of our life that you could just run on repeat. So often we have schemed about church planting, talked about the Lord's direction in his life. And so as I was thinking about this morning's ordination sermon, I, I settled quite quickly on turning our attention and Mark's attention to the book of Second Timothy. Partly because it's the book, more than any other in Scripture, that has been nearest to me in my ministerial life. And certainly for the last eight years or so, Mark has also been something of a Timothy to me. But as I set out this week to think about, well, what text from Second Timothy would be appropriate to this occasion... I first settled on 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1-5, through 5, and so I prepared that entire sermon on Wednesday morning and by lunchtime on Wednesday, for reasons I still can't fully explain, I said, well, that one needs to be scrapped, and so later on in the evening, while one of my sons was at soccer practice, I prepared a whole other sermon from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8-10. through 10. And for more reasons I still can't fully explain, that one needed to be scrapped too. And so I began to work my way back in Second Timothy and eventually came to the text before us today. Partly because, as one New Testament scholar says, there are a few passages in the New Testament that have in them and behind them such a sense of the sheer grandeur of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if Christian churches today are going to have power for Jesus over people, uh, what they need our Christian ministers, awash in the sheer grandeur of the glory of God's grace in sending us on Jesus Christ to save sinners. So I want you to see that today in a sermon that has the simple theme of the ministry of a gracious gospel. That's what the world needs more than anything else. That's what churches need more than anything else. That's what a church plant needs more than anything else. Ministers who preach a gracious gospel. And so while, of course, the sermon today has a unique, and I trust, obvious application to someone like Mark Evans, I do trust that it will have an obvious application to all of you in the room today. No doubt some of you are in here today, and you're officers in the local church, like Redeemer, Elders and deacons, others of you are are training, perhaps, to be a future officer, and I hope even uh, the words before us today might be used by the Spirit to reinvigorate you, perhaps, in uh, your calling. Many of you know that in our church, increasingly, with each passing semester, there are more and more men that are formally training for gospel ministry, and I hope even a sermon like this one might be able to uh, further cement a firm foundation on which such men might think about gospel ministry. But it's a gracious gospel that's put before you today. And what all of you need, boys and girls, men and women, no matter how young you are or old you are, what you need more than anything else, week in and week out, is the truth of a gracious gospel. And so I want you to see that today in two simple ways. I want you to see, first of all, how we are dependent on God's grace. Before in the final few verses of our text, we see that we can also be confident in God's grace. But before we get to verse 8 and through 10 and that dependence we must have on God's grace, you need to know something about this a letter that, that's before you. It's the Apostle Paul's last will and testament. These are the last words that Paul ever wrote that we have recorded for us in sacred scripture. We know by this point, he's in prison in Rome, in the Mamertine prison. He's in all likelihood chained between two Roman guards. And he's speaking one last time in written form, to his young protege in the gospel, Timothy, the young pastor there of the church at Ephesus, this man who was actually something of a a deputy of the great apostle as he went about, Timothy did, pastoring and shepherding in this church, and what Paul is telling Timothy right from the outset is, Timothy, I remember and I rejoice in the sincere faith that you've had in Jesus Christ from your earliest days. And that Timothy, the Lord, has set you apart for ministry. And if you just glance to the two verses before our text, verse six and seven, you'll see that in light of this sincere faith he's had since childhood, well, Paul says, verse six and seven, "'For this reason I remind you to fan into flame "'the gift of God, "'which is in you through the laying on of my hands,' For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and and self-control. What what Paul seems to understand his role here in this letter, at least in the initial part, is he's like this spirit-inspired poker that he's going to take and poke at Timothy's heart in order to stoke that fire evermore into a flame. And I even hope that this gracious gospel put before you in the text today might Further inflame some of you in the course of your calling in ministry for the Lord Jesus Christ, but verse eight through 10 simply tell us that we're dependent on God's grace. You see, he connects this desire to fan Timothy into flame by saying in verse eight, "Therefore, Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me His prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Now we'll come back to that language of being ashamed, that joy of sharing in suffering. Uh, But he's saying, Timothy, you're a gospel minister. You have to be faithful with this ministry that's been entrusted to you. And before he goes on with further applications, with further exhortations, as Paul is prone to do, it's as though the simple mention of this gospel that belongs to God's power, he needs to then just tell us about all the power that belongs to that gospel. And I want you to see six things, six things about this gracious gospel in the passage. First of all, it's saving grace. You see verse nine as it begins That God saved us. Uh, Kids, it doesn't tell us here, does it, uh, what precisely God saves his people from. uh, But we know from the rest of the Bible, and no doubt even from the Apostle Paul's other letters, that what uh, God is saving his people from is is sin. Now, we are by nature. Since Adam and Eve fell into sin, we are born children of wrath, and therefore what we deserve from the minute we start breathing on this earth, uh, we deserve God's just Judgment. You know, there's a few vivid memories that I have of a time, I suppose, when I was probably in middle school, and one of my sisters, who is older, would go through this season, it seemed like, of as many teenagers no doubt can do, of pushing back against my parents' authority. There's a couple of times I can recall her standing at the top of the stairs at our house at the time. And she was telling my parents, I have a right to behave a certain way, to say a certain thing, to possess a certain opinion. And sometimes that right would get responded to by my dad as, you have no rights. (laughs) And I want to tell you that you have a right to something from the minute you're born. You have a right to die for your sin. And isn't that the worst news you could hear that from the minute you're born, you have a right to suffer God's wrath and curse because you've broken his law. But this grace that Paul is beginning to expound, this grace that Paul's beginning to unfold, he says right from the outset, that which you have deserved is swallowed up now in what you don't deserve, which is salvation. That's what he means by he he saves you. Kids, it's the language of just safety. Uh, That which stood against you now you're safe from. That judgment that you deserved is now something that you have safety in light of God's glorious and wonderful grace. And he says, secondly, not just that it's saving grace, it's, it's sanctifying grace. Because he says, as verse 9 continues, that God has called us to a holy calling. Grace isn't something that just forgives us of our sins. Uh, grace is something that, that trains us in godliness, It sounds actually a lot like this teaching that Paul gave to the Ephesian church, the church that young Timothy pastored. As he says in his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 4, that God has chosen us before the foundation of the world. Why? That we would be holy and blameless before Him. God, when He saves sinners, isn't merely interested in saving them from their sin, but sanctifying them out of their sin. Students, you might get to a place, perhaps... This year, even, or perhaps quite soon, when you think, Well, what's God's will for my life? What does God really want me to do? Well, you can always answer that question with biblical words like, The will of God is your sanctification. That He's called you to be holy. He's called you to be blameless and above reproach before Him in Jesus Christ by sending the Spirit, by paying the penalty that your sins deserve, and now working. That grace into your heart is training you to put off sin and to put on the righteousness that's found in Jesus Christ. So it's saving and sanctifying grace. You see, as verse 9 continues, it's also sovereign grace. He called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Uh, What it's talking about here is something that we often think about theologically as this doctrine of election. It's a doctrine that uh, so often can divide Christians. But I hope you're in the room today and you see that this sovereign grace of God, this doctrine that he chooses, he summons, he calls, he initiates, he guarantees. That's the best news you could ever hear. Because why would God look upon you and look at anything you've done? Look at anything you're doing. Look at anything you could do and say, yeah, he or she deserves my eternal life. But that's not the way the gospel works, is it? God looks upon the people whom he has chosen, not because of anything they've done, are doing or will do, but in spite of all of those things. He says, yes, welcome in to my table of grace. You will get to see the king and his beauty. But why, Lord? Because I have decreed that it be so. Saving, sanctifying, and, and sovereign grace. Which leads then, as the text continues, to eternal grace. You see, this sovereign grace has been given to us in Christ Jesus, as verse 9 ends, before the ages begin. So it's reminding us not only that His grace is sovereign. But even the timing of that grace. That God isn't a God when he saves people. That just is kind of on the flight of fancy or whimsy choosing people. As even before you were ever formed in your mother's womb. He knew that one is mine. Before even the earth was laid on its foundations. Those are mine. He knew before everything you would ever fail in. Before everything you ever fell short in. My son will Spill blood for that person because I love him, because I love her. Why? Because I love him, because I love her. It's eternal grace and you'll see also it's visible grace as verse 10 continues. Uh, This grace in Jesus Christ, of course, it's been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, Students, as you begin this new semester, I would imagine that many of you, maybe even all of you... Uh, have a course in history. And perhaps many of you would say that history is your least favorite course. Uh, As someone who's often taught history in in institutions, I know how often students find history the least favorite course because they think these stories of old are outdated and boring and uh, completely unnecessary to study. Uh, But Christians are people that love history because it's God who has acted in history to send forth his son Jesus Christ. And that personal grace that's ours in Jesus Christ, it appeared, it was manifested when Jesus was born of a virgin named Mary. It's saving, it's sanctifying, it's sovereign grace, it's eternal and visible grace. You'll see finally in verse 10, it's victorious grace. It says that Jesus Christ has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Some years ago, at this previous church where Mark and I served together, we went through an unusually difficult time one spring. We as elders and leaders had been spending a fair amount of time ministering to this particular beloved brother in our congregation who we all knew was soon to die from cancer. And so we were preparing to... Lay him in the grave. I was preparing even over at his house multiple times, thinking about the funeral service and what songs would be sung, what things would be read, what he wanted to ensure that I would say in his memory. And then a few months before that, I got a call from a deacon at the church at the time, and he told me that their young child was stillborn in the womb. So we laid that one in the grave. And then it was actually the week before Easter, so it was Passion Week. Uh, This man who had cancer we all expected soon to die. His best friend in the church suddenly died of heart failure. So we laid him in the ground. And then it was only a few weeks later that this beloved saint did succumb to cancer. And it was this season of unusual grief and and sorrow that marked the church at the time. And it was at that time that I came across this poem by an old poet in England named John Donne who reflected on Christ's power over death. And some of the verses in that poem would simply say, Death be not proud, though the whole world fear you. Mighty and dreadful, though you may seem. Death be not proud, for your pride has failed you. You will not kill me. For even death will die. And why will death die? Because of what our text says, Jesus Christ has abolished death. Uh, the, The word there actually is he's robbed it of all of its power. He's taken all of its sting. He's removed all of its terror. So it's why, kids, if your parents are faithful to you, they've told you, if the Lord tarries, you're going to die. And you need not be scared. Jesus has victorious grace. We were in the van a few weeks ago just talking with the kids and somehow it came out, this conversation about dying. And... I uh, had made some sort of comment to the children. I was like, yeah, all of you guys are born to die. And A Boston, our four-year-old, who sits right behind me in the van, he kind of looked at him on his face quizzically as I saw it from the rearview mirror. And He goes, Daddy, I'm not dying. And I said, well, son, yes, you are. <laughs> and it's okay. Because Jesus Christ has what? Abolished death. And what has he put in its place? He's brought to life this light and immortality through the very gospel that Paul preaches, dependent upon God's grace. So what does this mean for a pastor like Mark Evans? Well, it certainly means a number of things, but maybe what we should say only at this point is that faithful pastors understand when all things are just stripped away, faithful ministry means this and only this, preparing people to die well. In Jesus Christ. That's all you're doing. Preparing people. To die well. In Jesus Christ. Some don't know that they're going to die. And they must be warned. And welcomed. Some are terrified that they're going to die. And they must be comforted. And helped. Others. Forget about death. And pastors say remember. You will die. But be not scared, for Christ has abolished it with this gracious gospel. So you're dependent upon God's grace, and you see in verse 11 and 12, uh, there's also this truth that faithful ministers, no doubt faithful church members, are also confident in God's grace. Verse 11 says, it's for this gospel, Paul announces, that I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. Uh, you can take out that middle noun because no one today is an apostle in the apostolic sense of Paul, but someone like Mark Evans is appointed even this day to be a preacher and a teacher. And those two things are different, but they're often united. Uh, preaching is declaring the truth of Jesus Christ, and teaching is just explaining the truth of Jesus Christ. Faithful ministers, they know the difference between declarations and explanations. Uh, that properly, I would always say on the Lord's Day morning, the church needs more declaring than explaining declarations of the king's herald announcing the king's authority uh, what paul says is of course for this gospel that he's suffering notice verse 12 which is why i suffer as i do but i'm not ashamed as i said i have known mark for long enough uh, to say that he has lived a blessed life The Lord has blessed him in all kinds of ways. That's tangible and visible for anyone to see when you meet him. And I would be very confident and content in saying that from this day forward, God is going to bless Mark also with sufferings, afflictions, trials and troubles that are peculiar to the gospel ministry. And if you think about the Apostle Paul's words here, As even I speak with pastors around the area, certainly in the last 18 months or so, many a pastor who seems to wake up on Monday morning and they open up a document on their computer and they save it with the title of resignation letter and then they wonder if they're going to fill it in during the week because they just don't know if they can keep going. Well, why is Paul going to keep going, he says? Well, for two reasons. Number one, he knows Jesus Christ. You see that in verse 12. I'm not ashamed for I know whom I have believed he could have said couldn't he i know what i have believed but there's a peculiar sweetness as a christian to saying the bedrock of confidence is not as much what i have believed you must believe that but whom i have believed because remember the gracious gospel that we proclaim It's not some sort of abstract truth. It's truth personified in a person who is God's sinless son, Jesus Christ. Kids, the most important question you can ever answer Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Paul says, I do. And so I'm going to keep going. But it's not just that, he's confident also in God's power. God's power, you'll see that at the end of verse 12. I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So for someone like Mark Evans, he's not going to suffer in a way that Paul did with these kind of physical sufferings that he'll tell other churches uh, or just unusually powerful and particular and painful. But what will belong to an ordinary faithful pastor in a context like ours today are, are new relational sufferings. Congregational sufferings. Emotional sufferings. Even sometimes physical sufferings. The threat today of the church in North America is not so much the annihilation of its existence, but its capitulation to a world that wants it gone. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed to suffer because we dare not capitulate. And why not? I know him. Who has saved me. I know God's power. What he's put in my hands. Is able to keep me going. Even when. You open up the desktop. The computer. And begin to write. I can't do it anymore. Let someone else do it. And Paul seems to be saying that to Timothy. If you know a thing about Timothy's ministry there at Ephesus. It seems as though multiple times. He was ready to give some sort of an equivalent. Of first century resignation letters. And Paul says nope. Keep going. The Lord has placed you there, entrusted you with the gospel, and Timothy, you must endure. Be confident in God's grace. You're dependent upon God's grace. One of the most famous preachers in England, the Church of England, in the 16th century, was a man named William Perkins. Then he was out and about doing his pastoral work one day when he was walking along the streets and he came up along a gallows. And they're standing on the gallows with this man who was a criminal. He was scheduled for an execution that morning. And Perkins, as he looked into this man's face, he saw that the man was was scared to die. And he said, what's wrong with your face, man? In old Elizabethan English, he'd say, what's wrong with your face? Are you afraid of death? And he said, yes. But I'm not so much afraid of death as what comes after death. And Perkins said, well, why don't you come down from those gallows and see if I can strengthen you in God's grace. They came down from the gallows and Perkins began to pray with him. This confession of sin and onlookers at the time, notice how this man was beginning to weep sincerely over the reality of his sin. And then Perkins kept praying about this great gracious gospel that is made available to sinners like this criminal. And he began to see those tears of sorrow turn into tears of joy. Grace... Genuinely, strengthens people. So the man went back up to the gallows and it was said by the public at the time that if you looked into his face, here was the face of a man content and courageous for he knew where he was going. And we want even this gracious gospel put before us today to in ways that only the spirit can apply in his wisdom to strengthen all of us to be likewise content and courageous in where the Lord has called us. So as we begin to close, let me see if I can put three more applications before your attention related to a faithful gospel church. If this kind of gracious gospel becomes the preoccupation of a people, what happens? Well, three things. Number one, a faithful gospel church praises God's grace. Many of you have read Paul's letters enough to know that he never seems to make it very far, does he? Uh, Never many sentences into the letter before he seems to just be spontaneously bursting out in adoration and exaltation of this gracious gospel. Just as he's doing here in 2 Timothy. How many hours of your day pass before you have some sort of simultaneous, spontaneous celebration of grace? For that grace, of course, you need every hour, A faithful church is going to praise God's grace. Number two, it's going to proclaim God's grace. That certainly is the burden here in this passage. Not only this passage, but the entire letter of 2 Timothy. It's Timothy, you've been entrusted with this gospel of grace, and you must preach it. You must preach it. There's this musical artist in her home that Emily and the children love. He's a brilliant songwriter and storyteller. And I often say... Yeah, but all this stuff sounds the same. Uh, But I trust when it comes to Mark Evans preaching in Cornerstone Presbyterian Church, you can say in a wonderful way, yeah, it kind of all sounds the same. Because there's the same Savior in every single sermon. But the Savior in His fullness and His glory. Because we're not interested in Mark Evans preaching political platforms. We're not ever interested in Mark Evans preaching cultural apologetics, philosophical ruminations but exalting in Jesus Christ. Because it's only by raising the Savior that anyone finds life. It's only by raising the Savior in the gaze of preaching that sinners are saved and saints are sanctified. And so we must praise God's grace. We must proclaim God's grace. And, and thirdly, we must protect God's grace. That really actually is what Paul is saying here at the end of this passage because you'll see again if you notice verse 12 he speaks about his own entrustment the stewardship of the gospel and his confidence in God's power and then if you skip down to verse 14 he essentially says Timothy you're to do the exact same thing by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us guard the good deposit entrusted to you knowing that God will guard it in your very heart and how do you Protect it, of course, you protect it by praising the very grace. You protect it by proclaiming that very grace. You protect it by persevering in that very grace. Uh, We want Christian ministers. We want Christians who know and rejoice in the truth that they are dependent on God's grace. They stand confident in God's grace because what is the church but the ministry of a gracious gospel? Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that you have indeed shown us your love in Jesus Christ and we pray that you would help us in our very spirit to be constrained and compelled by that same love that we might be ambassadors of reconciliation for your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray these things. Amen. Well, let's stand together as we now respond to God's word with the hymn printed there in your bulletins, Yet Not I But through Christ in me.